oh, Aboriginal art, it's a white thing. Like the people who bought it, the people who sold it, the people who wrote about it, you know, like, um, they were all white. Richard Bell. We wanted to change the way people thought about Aboriginal art. We're not the sort of group that does dot paintings and cross-hatching and we don't have those stories, we don't have the right to those stories. Our story has been an urban story. Jennifer Heard. Well, um, most of my culture was ripped from me in the process of colonisation. You know, look, I'm not going to make any apologies for that. You know, like, um, we paid the price. We paid, we paid the biggest price. I've been in Brisbane for six years. I remember all the Bielke-Peterson era and all of the stuff about the black line, you know, that blackfellas couldn't go past in South Brisbane. I don't have to justify, you know, like, that my culture was taken from me. Fuck everybody. You know, who wants, who wants, they can call me yellow fellow or whatever the fuck. They can, they can go fuck themselves. You know, I've worked with Richard Bell for 14 years. You know, when I started working with him, we were selling paintings for $2,000. You know, today they announced that he's been collected by the Tate Modern and... Um, Josh Milani. And he won the Telstra Award. And slowly, slowly over time, he kind of offended more people. And the more people he offended, the more I put these prices up. <laughs> I'm Margot Neal. I'm Siobhan McHugh. And this is Heart of Artness. A journey into the cross-cultural stories that animate the Aboriginal art world. So, Margaret, this episode we're looking at proper now in Brisbane, these edgy, overtly political, conceptual artists. Where would you place them? in relation to the more traditional concepts of what Aboriginal art is about? Um, the, the Queensland, as we know, was a very oppressed state, you know, for Aboriginal people. They had curfews and massacres and they've had very conservative governments. And so, like all um, minority peoples in the world, you know, they become very vocal in resistance. It's not surprising that somewhere like Brisbane would breed, if you like, some very um, activist artists like Richard Bell. Now, Proper Now is based on a lot of cultural principles. It's a collective, it's a group of people with youngers and olders, males and females, who work together in support of each other. It's like the, the clan system if you like, so yeah. there's these, a kinship born of perhaps dislocation in the first place to a um, connectiveness through uh, like a one voice as a spearhead into the dominant culture to make, to amplify the voice. Yep, let's listen to the episode. I'm catching a ferry to Sydney's Museum of Contemporary Art at Circular Quay to meet artist Richard Bell. In later episodes, 
We'll hear from other key players in the Brisbane art world. Jennifer Hurd, Vernon R. Key, Archie Moore, Michael Ether and Pat Hoffey. But this episode is about Richard Bell and his gallerist, Josh Milani. Richard Bell is the enfant terrible of Aboriginal art, if you can still be an enfant in your 60s. In 2002, Bell's theorem, Aboriginal art, it's a white thing, railed at the anthropologists, art historians, dealers and curators, invariably white, who presumed to judge and evaluate Aboriginal art. Richard Bell particularly decried the positioning of art from remote communities as somehow more authentic than urban Aboriginal artists such as himself. He doesn't pull his punches, and I'm a little nervous about this interview. Uh, you just got here from the airport? Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, let's get a coffee. How are you today? He's a strongly built man with a shock of white hair, dressed in smart casual, like everyone else at the MCA cafe. Well, I'll just have a flat white, thanks. Um, a large, the biggest one you got. As we take in the views across Sydney Harbour to the Opera House, I'm hyper conscious of the Captain Cook cruise boat. Okay, well, give me two. A few yards away, right where Britain effectively established the colony in 1788, Richard Bell placed his installation art, Embassy, which challenged that act of empire. We'll get to that, but first I fill him in on this project, how we're looking at cross-cultural relationships in Indigenous art production in three centres, including the Proper Now art collective he co-founded in Brisbane. Another looked at the Central Desert Art Centre, Warla Kalangu, and the third is... And up in the north, I bet you're going to know what I'm going to say. Up in the north, in northeast Arnhem Land. Oh, you're a cow? Fuck me. Could you... Why both those? Well, well, Ian chose them, and, I mean, they were because... Oh, fuck, of course Ian chose them. But I think he chose... Ian is my friend and colleague, Ian McLean, who conceived this project. An art historian, he sits squarely in the sights of Bell's theorem. It's a ropey start, but it shows me that Richard's sense of humour is never far away. You can see it in his art. I grew up around laughter, despite quite difficult conditions. You know, like, um, spent the first two years of my life living in a tent, waiting for the white people to throw away enough corrugated iron sheets, you know, for us to make um, a tin shack. Over the next hour and a half, I learned a lot about art and racism, about power structures and politics, but most of all, about resilience. Oh, shit, I must have had a hundred jobs, you know, back in them days, you know, you, you know, there was so much work available in the early and mid-70s. Uh, I worked in a machine shop doing tool making. Worked in abattoirs. I worked with the uh, Aboriginal Legal Service um, in Redfern here five or six years. And in Redfern, that's where I became politicised in the, the ways of the black consciousness here in Australia. So you got politicised there and then you, you moved back up to Queensland. And Queensland at that time was a very heavy place in the 70s and 80s. It was like a police state. So what drew you back up there? Oh, family and... Um, I needed to get out of Sydney, you know. This was the most fun city and I was going to fun myself to death. <laughs> I had to get out of here. 
Richard headed back to Brisbane in 1987 and had his first exposure to the contemporary art scene there. It was a turbulent time, with Aboriginal artists challenging the jingoism of the 1988 bicentennial celebrations. In 1990, Richard was one of the artists featured in a groundbreaking show called Balance. Coordinated by Michael Ether and Marlene Hall, assisted by Lanso Chin and Richard's brother Marshall Bell, it also arose out of discussions with Yorta Yorta artist Lynn Onus. Balance featured works one-third by white artists, one-third by remote Aboriginal artists, and in a major breakthrough, one-third by urban Aboriginal artists. But by the mid-90s, Richard was back in Sydney and things weren't going so well. Um, struggled, you know, sleeping on people's couches. And that sort of shit, and sleeping in cars and fucking whatever. Then one day, a friend showed up. He wanted Richard to attend a landmark exhibition by Lynn Onus, who refused to have his art categorised as Aboriginal, something he saw as ghettoising it. It was a turning point. I think um, when he came there, I think I was asleep on the floor, on the ground. <laughs> Drunk, I think it was about 11 o'clock in the morning. That's how fucking bad it was. But, yeah... I went back to went back to Brisbane. You know, um, got back into art. And, oh, here I am. When I first met him, Richard had been living on the streets for something like six years in Sydney in Redfern. He was totally down and out, didn't have any front teeth and he was pretty destitute and he was very skinny and emaciated, he used to smoke heavily and um, we became friends. Back then, Josh Milani was a budding art curator working at a Brisbane art gallery owned by Peter Bellis. He'd grown up with a mother who practised eco-feminist art and a father who collected works by Arthur Boyd and Brett Whiteley but he was becoming increasingly interested in contemporary art and anti-establishment artists such as Richard Bell. I remember having a beer with him at the Brunswick Hotel. I asked him about his past and his art and he wrote on the back of a coaster and then he flipped it over and I lifted it up and looked at it and it had a little slogan on the back. It said, Enema of the State. He goes, <laughs> he goes that's who I am. Richard Bell's protest art takes diverse forms, from installations to paintings. His work might reference other artists, such as Roy Lichtenstein or Jackson Pollock, or subvert an Emans Tiller's take on a Hans Heisen print. He draws on political, legislative and historical texts to devise slogans of his own that carry a real gut punch. And somehow, he seems to be plugged right into the zeitgeist. I did have a fellow who came in who bought three Richard Bell paintings. One of the paintings was like a dot painting, a splatter painting, and it said, the price is white on it. And um, he looked at it and thought, that just captures the moment. At the time, Josh recalls, debates were raging in the West about accepting refugees, then mostly from Syria, and Richard's statement, the price is white, somehow embraced bigger arguments about racism. 
Milani and Belle are something of an odd couple. Josh Milani's comfortable middle-class life was worlds away from Richard's fringe-dwelling existence. Back when Richard was growing up in the 50s and 60s, Aboriginal people weren't even counted in the census. Richard, his brother Marshall and his mother moved around a lot. I had my home bulldozed when I was 14 years old, 68, in Mitchell. And we didn't have running water, we had no sewerage, we had no electricity, no public transport, anything like that. No roads. I remember waking up at 7 o'clock in the morning and um, there's a truck outside and a bulldozer on top of the truck. And we're, we're the last people living there and um, we had nowhere to go. The sergeant of police there at the time, he just said, well, you can't do this, you're not allowed to bulldoze this house. They haven't got anywhere else to go. So they went into town to look for a house for us, a vacant house. There were none, but there were two condemned houses and they uncondemned one. And then bulldoze ours. You know, we had we moved into in, into town where we had to start paying rent and uh, to to the master. It didn't take me long to work out that you know, um, to question, you know, like why it is that we, the the descendants of the owners of the land, um, that we had no ownership of anything. Um, I found it strange that these white people could claim ownership of, of our land. I was perplexed, to say the least, but I was also fearful of the, the police and, and the power that you know, white people um, exerted over us. while Richard played the game. He and his brother took up where their mother left off, selling tourist art. I was making boomerangs and painting them and you know, spears and that sort of stuff. And that was hard. Fuck me, it was so hard. You know, like we were competing you know, against Indonesian... Rip-offs. Yeah, you know, like, um, it was costing us like $4 plus to make a boomerang. And they were retailing for $2, you know, like there was no fucking way we could compete with that. Tough as it was, it got Richard thinking about art. And one day, he had an epiphany. I think I was 34 and I decided that I was never going to work for the man again. The white man? The man, you know, like, um, I was never going to work for anybody again. I was only going to work for myself. Only made art since. Once again, my fucking arrogance, you know, <laughs> allowed me to think that I could actually make a living out of making art. Fuck me. <sighs> totally crazy. I don't know what made me think I could do that. It took Richard close to the edge at times. But he never lost that mission. And when he met Josh Milani back in Brisbane in the early 2000s, after years away, 
he was feeling optimistic again. He said to me, within three years, I'm going to have my career back on track and I'm going to have my kids living with me again. And um, I sort of thought, well, great, you know, that's, I, I wish you the best. And within two years, he'd won the Telstra Aboriginal Art Award and his kids were living with him. And it was an amazing triumph of will over adversity and, and in a way that was very, very noble in many respects. I, you know, I look at what Richard did in that short space of time with, and without compromising his values at all, you know, I mean, he really did it his way and offended everyone at almost every step. Bell's Theorem, Aboriginal art. It's a white thing. Aboriginal cultures throughout the world have been infested by plagues of anthropologists down the ages. It is now approaching the fourth decade of art centres and they have spawned a new tribe of people called Bits, being in the Northern Territory. Should you ask an Aboriginal how they're feeling, the most appropriate answer would be, wait till I ask my anthropologist. Bits get close to Aboriginal people and culture to ultimately return south, where they proclaim their newly acquired pseudo-Aboriginality. They are stuck so far up our asses that they're on first name terms with sphincters, colons, and any intestinal parasites. In short, the dreamings cannot be complete without reciprocity between the supposed real Aboriginals of the North and the supposed unreal or inauthentic Aboriginals of the South. Basically, when I came back, I realised that, you know, after talking with Vernon O'Key and Laurie Nilsson and Jennifer Hurd and Gordon Hookie and others, you know, for me to get back into the, the scene, I had to participate in the discourses that were happening. And I didn't like any of the shit that was happening. So I, me and my arrogance, you know, I decided that I would set <laughs> the discourse <laughs> that I wanted to participate in. And I wrote this essay based on discussions that blackfellas had been having for decades, and I just happened to write it down. Bell's theorem, Aboriginal art, it's a white thing, caused a stir in Australian art circles. Richard Bell was vindicated in a very public way a few months later when he won the 2003 Telstra National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Award, only the second time in its 20-year history that this prestigious award had gone to an urban artist. His controversial reference to the supposed real Aboriginals of the North articulated the frustration felt by urban Aboriginals that, especially in the art world, they were somehow perceived as less authentic than Aboriginal people from remote communities. Absolutely, we, we were. You know, I, I didn't create that division by writing this paper. That division was already there. This is what empire does. It creates divisions between people and um, Bell's theorem had nothing to do with that division other than to, to uh, critique it or announce that it was there. So when you see somebody from up around Yirrkala who they, they got colonised 150 years later than this side yeah, yeah. so they, they still have language and they have ceremony in their daily life like do you feel happy or is there a slight tinge of envy? No. <sighs> No, I think that's fantastic that that they've got that, you know, like, and I'll fight with them, you know, like, to, to hold on to that as, as long as they can.
not even a hint of, of jealousy in, in there. Like, like it would be pointless to to look back and, and, and say, well, I wish this, you know, well, fuck that shit, you know, that's just impossible. So I'm, I'm pragmatic in that regard. I have to deal with what's in front of me now, you know, and what's around me now. I have to deal with that, and so do they. That's one of the reasons why we set up proper now was to to assert our Aboriginality. You know that it, you know that there's not one kind of Aboriginality in in this country. It is offensive, you know, to have these discussions about the authenticity of, of people, you know, given the brutality of the fucking colonisation of this country, you know, how dare they fucking talk about blood quantum. It's ridiculous. I love that American comedian where she said, yeah, I'm half man on my father's side. It's, it is ridiculous, isn't it? You know? Richard tells me that the Proper Now Artist Collective was formed in Brisbane in 2003 by three Aboriginal artists, himself, Vernon Arkey and Jennifer Hurd, whom we heard at the top of the episode. The term proper, spelled P-R-O-P-P-A, refers to the Aboriginal way of doing things with due regard to appropriate protocols and community respect. It's about Indigenous artists supporting each other in an urban context where culture has been fragmented by colonisation. Or as Margot Neal has written, it's a strategy for cultural survival and a site for activating Indigenous agency. But while Richard Bell remains an active member of Proper Now, he's also embedded in the mainstream art world. His career took off following his Telstra win, and his art has been exhibited all over the world, including at several biennales. He's represented by his old friend Josh Milani, who in 2007 took over full ownership of the Brisbane Gallery established by Peter Bellis. The Milani Gallery is now a major force in contemporary Australian art, imbued with Josh Milani's distinctive ethos. I suppose the philosophy of the gallery is to represent progressive ideas. Uh, and I think most of the best artists throughout the history of art, and let's say go back to Goya, were progressive in their thinking. And I suppose what I've tried to do is show artists who uh, seem to be telling a, a story that is engaged with the contemporary moment, that is engaged with what's happening. It also has some kind of um, formal or conceptual quality that is pushing art somewhere new or interesting, which may be through the content and maybe through the form of the work. So, you know, someone like Khaled Sabsabi, who's Lebanese refugee who's lived in Australia following the civil war in Lebanon, you know, is making art both about the Australian condition but also about the Middle East. And particularly the artists that I work with, many of them, I wouldn't say that they're artists making necessarily art about themselves, but their lives inform their work in a very deeply political way, perhaps, particularly with the urban, what we term urban Aboriginal artists, a phrase with which I have some problems, but their work is coming out of a lived experience about surviving genocide. 
you an Aboriginal artist or a contemporary artist, or both? Oh, I'm, I'm a contemporary artist. Um, um, I make contemporary art, but you know, I'm, I'm an Aboriginal. You know, like, um, and the content of my art is Aboriginal. The you know, content of, of most of my art is Aboriginal. Not, not all of it, though. It's, a, it's something that I take seriously. I mean, sometimes it's very funny, you know, what we do, you know, artists working with artists like Richard Bell or Gordon Hooke, you know, there's a lot of laughs to be had. But as an advocate, yeah, my position is to do it with a sense of moral purpose and, and uh, hopefully some integrity. It's not just about selling pictures or, or being a salesperson. I mean, that's one side of the job. But I think to be a proper agent, you know, I just naturally take an interest in what they're doing and, and want to be uh, involved. I would never intervene in what they're doing, but if they seek my advice, because in some ways I'm their first public, you know, they'll show me the work before anyone else. So I, I give them the first, and I tend to know their work pretty intimately, so I can give them feedback that is maybe not objective, but hopefully is useful. I try to be critical uh, constructively, but sometimes it's more involved than one would hope. I can remember, um, once getting a phone call from Richard Bell at about three in the morning and um, asked me to pay his bar tab with my credit card. <laughs> and I woke up in the middle of the night and he was uh, out having fun. But anyway, so it, it's a, it's a um, an artist can be in an hour of need at any moment. Back at the MCA in Sydney, I'm still grappling with the complexities of Bell's theorem. Richard Bell has had major international success, from fancy galleries like this one to his installation of Embassy, a pungent commentary on oppression, in venues from Jerusalem to New York. Embassy has ignited all kinds of comments from local activists. I invited uh, people from Black Lives Matter. I've invited Sylvia McAdam from... Um uh, Idle No More. I had Alan Michelson, a Mohawk artist who lives in New York. Um, you know, his reservation is um, on the border of Canada and the US. Um, I also had Emery Douglas, who was the, the Minister of Culture in, in the Black Panther Party in the 1970s and, and 60s, 70s. The response was fantastic. So many people like, just walking by. You know, like, um, we had these signs you know, from the Tent Embassy, you know, like um, you were on stolen land. You know, and this is two streets up from Wall Street. You know, like on on Broadway in <laughs> in Manhattan, New York. People would read these signs. You know, it's, wow, that's true. And others would be, well, indignant and shit like that. Yeah, so, and everything in between. So like, it was great. So. How are you treated when you go overseas? Is it different from the way you're treated oh, it's here? Very, it's very different. You know, like, um, just not being treated as an Aboriginal is remarkably uplifting and transformative. You know, we don't have you know, this weight of the white man's burden hanging over us. I can past Italian or, or Greek or, you know, or Spanish or French, you know, so pardon the That's terrible that in Australia, you know... I yes, mean, in, in, in my own country, you're like a... I'm, I'm treated like, like a fucking prisoner, you know, like... Um, it's an awful feeling. 
Rather than be oppressed by racism, Richard Bell has appropriated it for his own purposes and built a successful career on calling it out. The Yolnu talk about living in a two-ways world, moving between the indigenous and western dimensions. But Richard Bell walks a tightrope. He mocks and inveighs against the very people he depends upon, wealthy white folk who buy his art. I've one last curly question for him. Is it not a bit of a sellout, under the very rules of Bell's theorem, that instead of being managed by an Aboriginal agent, he's chosen to run with a privileged white gallerist who has access to the elites and establishment of the art world? No, not at all. You're like, um, no, nobody thinks it's strange that black people play in sporting arenas you know, that are owned by white people, you know, for teams that are owned by white people. Josh has, has an arena for, for us to play in. The MCA is like the equivalent of the Sydney Cricket Ground. You know, the Art Gallery in New South Wales is ANZ Stadium. So it's like sort of fight from inside the tent rather than be outside it. In, in these circumstances, yes. You know, we position ourselves inside the tent. But, you know, that doesn't stop us from getting outside and pissing on the tent. was Aboriginal Art, It's a White Thing, part of the Heart of Artness podcast about cross-cultural currents in Aboriginal art. Thanks to Richard Bell, Josh Milani and Jennifer Hurd, and to the MCA in Sydney. This series is devised and produced by me, Siobhan McHugh, with the support of Margot Neal, Senior Indigenous Curator at the National Museum of Australia, and Ian McLean, Hugh Ramsey Chair of Contemporary Art at the University of Melbourne. Technical production is by Guy Freer. Heart of Artness is a University of Wollongong research project funded by the Australian Research Council. You can hear other episodes wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website, artness.net.au. You can see pictures there of the amazing art and of the people we've talked to. You describe the characteristics that you imbued in your own self-portrait, defiant, assertive, pensive, imploring, confident, dismissively cool and ambivalent. Absolutely. They're still all there. My arrogance assures it. <laughs> That's not down there. <laughs> Doesn't need to be there.